The clapper is our intro, and I'll just put that down. But welcome back to episode nine now of the New Levels Coaching Podcast. Remember, we are the coaching podcast that brings the endurance world lots of inspiration and education, so you can literally go away and run with it. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by another Hillier, Kirsty Hillier, who is my sister-in-law, and we're going to talk all things triathlon and triathlon coaching this week, and we're maybe going to reach out to those people who are thinking about dabbling in the triathlon world, particularly those runners who think that they might try more than one discipline. You will have noticed that this week we have a theme tune, a podcast jingle to kick us off. So big thanks to Tommy Davies, who recommended that we put a tune at the start of our podcast, like all good podcasts, he said. And keep your recommendations coming, please, and your feedback. It's really important for us, and it's really good to read that feedback and know who's listening. So thanks, Tommy for that recommendation. Hopefully, that piece of music gets your approval. Episode nine, as I mentioned, is all about triathlon and applying the coaching and learnings that Kirsty has learned. Kirsty is not just a triathlete, though. She's a runner herself. She's a very proud mum of Mila, who is my niece. And she is a very own super mum. She still takes part in running events, including marathons and triathlons. And she has some big triathlons to her name. She is officially, I don't like saying the word Iron Man curse. It doesn't fit well. I prefer Iron Lady. Uh, she's completed many triathlons around the world, including some of the most famous ones like Alpe d'Huez. But I'm going to let her touch on those in just a second. I'm delighted to have her here because it's the first time we're going to really touch on triathlon. And I know it's really important for our endurance athletes to look at different disciplines and how they may vary their training as well. So we'll touch on that as well as some cross-train elements that you might want to apply to your training. So Kirst, before we get into it, I always start by asking, what have you been up to this weekend or this last week? I know I've not seen you because I've been away in Sweden, but I imagine you've been busy as always. Yeah, thank you for that introduction, Lewis, and uh, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's uh, an absolute pleasure to, to be here. Um, this weekend has been um, spending some time with the family. Um, we actually went to see the infamous Sooty Show on Saturday morning. So my weekend was kicked off with, with the little one going to see the Sooty Show, which was fantastic. Um, and then obviously training fits in around that. So, yeah, we did some biking on Saturday in the wet weather. It was uh, and then a firework display in the wet weather um, and then a lovely trail run on Sunday. So I had a really lovely weekend. <laughs> The, the official Sooty Show the as well. The sooty official sooty one. Show. God, that takes me back. Oh, 75 years, apparently. Wow. Yeah, wow. So it was, I can't believe it's been going that long. But, yeah. I wouldn't have guessed that if you'd have asked me like a quiz question. I'd have been way off with that. But it shows how far that goes back. Oh, that must have been incredible. Yes, it was. It was very good. Dry for the Sooty Show? Was it indoors? It was indoors. It wasn't dry because they had super soakers in there. Oh, amazing. <laughs> for the audience, which Mila absolutely loved. But... Um, yeah, it, it was great, but dry indoors, not so much outdoors. Brill, well, whilst you were getting wet in the UK outdoors training and bonfire night and firework night, we were over in Sweden, and believe it or not, we actually stayed pretty dry. Um, so Gemma had bought full battleproof gear. She thought she was going skiing, I think, with her uh, her attire that she had bought ready for the weekend. But yeah, we had a fantastic weekend in Sweden. Obviously, we were checking in with you, and um, I'll send you video updates of James and Gemma, but I just wanted to give a quick shout out to both both James and Gemma, who did fantastically well at the UT, UTMB event over in Cullimanon. They have both qualified for UTMB finals next year in the OCC, which is brilliant news. They have done that at first attempt. So yeah, big well done to you both. I'm very, very proud of you both. And I can't wait to go on that journey with you next year in 2022. 
24. So yeah, real positive weekends for us both, which yeah. is always fantastic. So let's kick off, Kirst. I wanted to ask you about your kind of your background and the, the triathlon background that you have. So just give our listeners and viewers a bit of an insight into some of the triathlons that you've done, uh, some of the biggest ones that you've you've taken part in, and maybe how you actually got into triathlon just to start off. So I think my kind of multidiscipline background comes from, and, and my love for kind of the the different elements of triathlon probably comes from right back from when I was little. So I was always exposed to lots of different sports. You know, my my family, it was always sport on the TV, whether that was Formula One, rugby, football, and, you know, we were always doing cycling or swimming. So it was always lots of different activities and different base. And as I kind of progressed through my childhood, um, I kind of, I liked doing lots of different ones rather than just focusing on one thing. Um, and I was always into like horse riding and things. And I think kind of as I, I progressed through to my teen, teenage years, there was a starting of what we called, I think they still have it now, but what was called adventure racing. Um, so I kind of started to dabble in a little bit of adventure racing. And actually the photographs that you sent me from like the, the guys racing at the weekend in Sweden, some of that was like quite familiar with what I used to race in, you know, in my, in my late teens and early 20s. And it was like, it kind of brought back quite vivid memories of, of that racing, which I'd kind of not really thought about. Um, so, yeah, so I kind of went to uni um, and, you know, triathlon wasn't really on, on the radar. Um, and I ran my first London Marathon in 2005 when it was Flora London Marathon. Um, and that was really hard, <laughs> really tough. Um, and that was kind of my first experience of dabbling in like the running club world and tr coaching. Um, and I came out, of, I came out of that and then went to New Zealand for a bit, came back, started this the more into adventure racing. And then I kind of stumbled upon triathlon from a local club. So I got involved with um, Charmwood Tri, which is the local club here in Loughborough, um, and started with their swimming sessions. Absolutely loved it. Um, the coach there, um, the head coach, Johnny Ryle, who is actually coached now by New Levels Coaching, uh, Sonia, I believe. He is, yeah, he's with yeah. Sonia, yeah. Um, he was brilliant. Like, he he did wonders in the, in the club, and we really, you know, everyone really rallied around, and we, we just, we had, we had a great time. There was Saturday bike rides. We used to go out um, on the, in the local roads, and it was just great. And then I did my first triathlon in 2009, it was, little sprint triathlon, and loved it and that was it I got the bug um and yeah just just went from from sprint to standard distance up to half Ironman and then Ironman so I've done basically two Ironman distance races which were the Outlaw in Nottingham um one of which Johnny actually coached me to do my first one um which was, was fantastic having a coach to be able to guide me through that um I then went on to do the half Ironman in Mallorca and that was oh, just brilliant absolutely love that I love racing abroad um and you get better weather though don't you, you so do. <laughs> I mean we were to be fair we were very lucky because the year before they had biblical weather it was awful for for over there and uh, yeah we, we just had pure sunshine and it was just stunning it was a great race and then fast forward to 2019, no, 2018, sorry, not 2019, because that's when I had Mila. I definitely didn't race Alpe d'Huez then. <laughs> <laughs> um, the year before, I did the Alpe d'Huez triathlon, which was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, apart from having Mila. Um, but 
yeah, it was just phenomenal. I mean, you know what the Alps are like with 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 the French Alps and stuff like that. It was just it was just stunning. Yeah, amazing over there in the French Alps. And I remember the photos coming through because I was away that weekend. But obviously, you had the support crew there with you, and the photos looked immense. It's such an amazing place, and. And I would say, you know, quite famous mainly for things like the Tour de France. People are familiar with the switchbacks up at Alpe d'Huez, but it is a really, really tough climb. And as you say, a tough experience. But we're, we're delighted that you got into triathlon. You, I guess you found triathlon because obviously you now sit as head of coaching at NLC as our head triathlon coach. And you continue that coaching journey, which started uh, like most do with getting involved yourself first. And that gives you a lot of learnings, a lot of experience. I'm going to go back and touch on a couple of things that that you mentioned there. Adventure racing, because when I first heard of you adventure racing, it actually came up because we were at a trail camp and you're really good at running downhill. And that's it's a tough skill for a lot of people. And a lot of people were petrified about running downhill. And maybe I didn't appreciate that enough because I, I love running downhill. And quite clearly you did. And then Gemma said to me, well, Kirsty used to do adventure racing. And I naively thought, well, adventure racing seemed to me like it was done on a bike. And I just thought, oh, well, Kirsty's been doing another form of mountain biking, which I knew you'd done in the past. But for people tuning in, what is adventure racing? So so adventure racing is really taking yourself out of the comfort zone. Um, Some races, you would know exactly what you were doing when you turned up. So you'd sign up and you would know you were doing, say, you know, a, a ride on the mountain bike, off-road ride to start with. You'd then maybe do a bit of running in there. Then you'd do some kayaking. Then you'd go back on the running. Then you'd go back on your bike again. So that, and you, you would know that when you turned up. Some races, you wouldn't have a clue. So you turned up with your equipment and then you'd be told you'd be doing 10K kayak, 20K mountain bike, bit of running wherever. So it was all completely unknown so I only really did probably the, the kayak, the mountain bike and the, the trail type off-road running. But, you know, there were some races where you could, they could throw rock climbing in there. They could throw gorge walking in there. They could throw, some of them I saw with roller skates. They had sections <laughs> on roller skates. It was, in, it was insane, but it was so much fun. Like it was brilliant. It sounds fun. It sounds incredible. And I guess sometimes that element of unknown and uncertainty yeah. probably adds to the anticipation <laughs> and the adventure, hence the name. But that kind of obviously lends itself naturally to triathlon because as you said it's a a multi-discipline approach and what I mean by that is that it's more than one discipline which you said always attracted you so it does then lend itself to your progress towards the triathlon world I guess when you then found triathlon and and we're quite blessed around here aren't we with the facilities like Charm would have access to say the Loughborough pool for example and uh, Kirsty and I are both based in Loughborough which has the most incredible facilities on campus which obviously helps but going into the triathlon world as a a novice as a beginner you know you've obviously progressed to some of the biggest and best triathlons in the world and and some of those longer ones but when you first got into it what was it like getting into it were you nervous going in there and for anybody maybe thinking about going into triathlon you know what sort of things did you have to consider when you first threw yourself in there so I think I was actually looking back at one of my old training diaries. I used to keep, you know, I've always kept a training diary and every year and uh, um, like now it's more online, the training diaries that we've got. But, you know, back then it was all kind of, you know, notebook and, you know, every year your notebook closed and then a new year and your new notebook came out. So I actually looked back at my first ever training diary 
And some of the things I must have written in there was hilarious looking back at it. Now. I was I was <laughs> going to ask you that because I, f- I found one of mine recently and I had to flip through and I was like, jeepers, why was I writing stuff like that? Because what you wrote in a notebook, I don't know if it's similar for you, what I wrote in a notebook was very different to what I would write online, yeah. if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Is that the same for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah it was. It was funny. I wasn't, yeah. <laughs> one of the most popular ones, I don't know if you're the same, was weather. Yeah. Yeah. I was saying, there was always a weather bit. Every single like little bit of session was always about it was raining today or it was really cold. <laughs> strange, very strange. I guess it's because we wanted that visual feedback of what it was like and we didn't have Garmin to go on and yeah. check all those stats yeah. and we couldn't go back and look at all the data and the technology. So we almost used to give a bit more detail, yeah, I guess, and, yeah. and try and figure it out. But yeah, sorry, I, I I digress a little bit there and go off a little bit on topic. But yeah, your training diaries and you find lots of fascinating stuff. It was, and it was interesting, like even from that very first training diary that I found, you know, I must have had more from, from back, back in my teens, but that one which I, I found from my triathlon, my first, I always had process goals there and goals. There wasn't, it was always that underpinned every part of my training. So even as a, a kind of an athlete before my, you know, kind of triathlon coaching journey, those goals were there. Um, and, you know, it's it's great to to see that, I think, and, and to kind of, oh, that was where my journey was for that year. And that's where my head was thinking. So, yeah. Those process goals are a really good place to start because I think anybody who's thinking about getting into a triathlon, they'll, they'll obviously think, where do I start? What, what do I do? Yeah. You know, and often we become, we become obsessed with the outcome and we can look at those big outcome goals of, I want to finish a triathlon, an Olympic distance or a sprint, for example. But what are some of those process goals that people could be thinking about to help them on that journey in order to complete, complete it? Because as coaches, we say, think about the process. Yeah, yeah. But what does that actually mean in triathlon terms? So I think trying to like break it down, you know, like one of, one of my first goals was to find a club and get help, you know, get support and, you know, what, how, do, how do I piece the three disciplines together and how do I train in those individual disciplines and kind of utilise the resource, resources around us um, so that, you know, getting get involved in a club and then you can then work on like your kind of strengths and weaknesses within that. So like working on the swimming or the cycling, do you need a bit more direction with what you're actually supposed to be doing? Um, so it's quite a lot of like, resources to really tap into i really like the way you said that was a goal to actually find a club yeah. people wouldn't associate that with being a goal they yeah. just think oh that's something i've got to do but i really like the way that you've broken that down as a process goal in the same way that we get people reach out to us for coaching mm. that might be a goal for them to, to get a coach it always baffles me when people don't have support on their journey because i always use the analogy you wouldn't start driving without an instructor well some people might i guess yeah. um but they'll jump in a car and they'll have an instructor because they want to pass the test and they want to learn from them but then so many people in the endurance world triathlon and runners think I'll have a go at this on my own and that always baffles me and it maybe is because I've always been coached and similar to you you've probably always gone to clubs and and had coaching support but it is valuable isn't it I, I guess when you first started I bet you learnt so much in those first few months by going to a club and being around people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, not just from the coaches on poolside and, and out on the bikes with us, but like from the people who were there as as athletes themselves and, you know, the support of having other people kind of in a similar situation to yourself, but, you know, all trying to 
to have fun along the way and get to, you know, either race at an event or, or just enjoy being as part of a club and as part of that community. Yeah. Um, I think one of the uh, kind of one, my, my biggest learnings through, through that early period was, you know, to me, having grown up through having horse riding instructors and like you said, with the driving instructors, you know, it was what well, I didn't really question going to a club or having a coach because it was like, well, I want to do something. I want to be better. So I'm going to get help to do it. But I can see like with you know, people get quite nervous and, and worried that, oh, I'm not good enough to have a coach. I'm not good enough to be part of a club. But there's no level. There's no, you know, the, the, the clubs are there to support us. The coaches are there to support us. So I think that's kind of a myth that that, that we, you know, we're trying to get squash away, really. Yeah, I think with the people at the top end of the sport, people who are maybe beginners or just getting into things or in running, people often refer to themselves as like a mid-pack runner. Mm. And they say, well, coaching isn't for me because I'm a mid-pack runner or I'm a beginner, I'm just getting into it. But what you find in running, and I'm sure it's similar in triathlon, is the people who are at the top end of the sport, the coaches to them are almost like a sounding board or a mentor. Yeah. There's almost less input coming from the coach and Absolutely. it becomes more of a relationship and a back and forth relationship. Mm-hmm. Certainly how I like to work with the more experienced athletes. And I would say a coach or a club is more important for people who are just starting that journey. Because there's so much to learn at that point in, in your career. And I, I guess that's where you started. There was so much to absorb and pick up, but that's only going to help you on that journey. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So before we go on to the, the coaching, because as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the times what happens with us coaches is we get into the sport that we love uh, or we grow to love it, yeah. which is, I think is a fair statement. We compete ourselves, and this isn't for everybody, but majority of people often compete in that sport themselves, and then they naturally progress into coaching because they they like helping people or they want to develop people themselves or certainly help to develop people. But before we go into the, your coaching journey, I wanted to touch back on a couple of those big triathlons because I remember coming to watch you at the Outlaw in yep. Nottingham, <laughs> uh, which was a brilliant experience for me to go to go and watch that. But what are some of your favorite moments, some of your favorite challenges that you've done, particularly the tries? Which are the ones that stand out for you? I think hands down, Alp Duez probably stands out from just everything about the race, the way way it was organized, the way... I mean, you're always going to love a race when it's perfect conditions. Mm -hmm. Like you couldn't ask for better weather for for that race. And it was... For me, I like a hot race. I like it when it's a bit warmer and that suits me. So maybe for some people that was a bit too much, but, you know, for me that was brilliant. And, you know, I loved the, the cycling. It was just so technical, so challenging, and that, that really comes to play. The running was brutal. <laughs> I mean, that was at altitude. I can't remember off the top of my head how high Outdoors is um, at altitude, but it's... Um, it was tough. That and was, it was right at the top, wasn't it, the room? Yeah, really, it was yeah, right right at the top. Um, I mean, good good job for the views, I have to say. <laughs> well, that I'm going to go straight to that point about the altitude, the technical climbing, because I remember your preparation for Alpe d'Huez, and I think it might be fair to say that you're also your best experiences are often the ones where you have a good performance mm. and, and something really positive comes out of it. But I saw firsthand what preparation went into that triathlon. So let's give people a bit of an understanding of how you prepared for, well, one, the altitude, two, possibly the heat, because it could can be hot in the mountains in, in the summer, uh, three, the technicality of, of the event itself. 
Uh, and four, knowing that you're probably going to be in a place that is very different to where you usually train. And what I mean by that is the altitude's high, uh, the climbs are bigger, uh, the road surfaces are even different. So everything is different from your usual training environment. What steps did you take and what can people do to try and match that training environment if they're going to a challenge themselves? So I kind of looked at like, you know, I'd invested in this race and I thought, you know, I've, I've paid the money to, to go and get do it. I, I want to do, do it justice and I want to make sure that I'm in the best possible place to be able to do that um, physically. So it, it, I'm quite fortunate that my partner loves cycling as well. So it wasn't too hard to encourage him to come abroad with me and uh, go and do some actual cycling um, in Italy and also in, in France as well. So we went and did quite a lot of big, big climbs. Um, it is very hard to kind of replicate an, al uh, an alpine climb like they are over there here. Uh, it's not impossible, but, you, you know, it, it is good to try and get that, you know, at least one type of climb like that. You can get them in Scotland, obviously, in Wales and, and places like that, but it's it's making sure that you, you put the time in and you, you do it. Um, so when you say an alpine climb, you're referring to, again, similar to trail running where I've been coaching now for kind of 18 months, where it's those long, tough climbs that have yeah. no let up whatsoever yeah. <laughs> and you just seem to be climbing forever. Yeah. And they're very tricky to find over here. Yeah, really tricky. I mean, like you can go to the lakes and but even so, you're probably 45 minutes max sometimes to climb, whereas we we climb Stelvio and the Gavia and all those places in Italy and they're like in the saddle 90 minutes climbing you're just constant and it, it, it you don't you know it's trying to replicate that what you're going to then do into the race so um, you you went to italy prior to the event and france prior to the event to well that would help with the altitude too i guess yeah, yeah, yeah. but, but it's certainly for the climbs if people didn't have that access what else could they do let's say for example if they have a turbo trainer at home how could they try and replicate that so a lot of like strength sessions on the turbo. So over overgearing is a massive one. So really pushing out some big power on on those and spending some time just being in that higher kind of slower leg turnover zone, but also you know pu pushing some really big power trying to get up there. But I don't, you know, I think you've got to get out on the bike. I think bike handling skills probably outweighs what you can uh, can do on the turbo so if you can try and get you know even if you do hill reps like we've got a local hill here Bradgate you know I did actually do lots of loops of that mm -hmm. up the Bradgate no not Bradgate so Beacon Hill up Beacon Hill down Dean's Lane and that was my loop for about 20 miles <laughs> I just did that and you just sometimes you just have to you have to find a hill and go with it. <laughs> this is where we see kind of parallels or crossover from, from different sports because I've been in exactly the same position where I've been looking to get elevation, mm. which is what you're looking at. Um, but I've also been looking to get that technicality of climbing a hill, but also descending, which descending, I yeah. imagine is a big part on the bike. And I was doing that in a running sense. So no surprises. I went to Beacon and Bradgate, which you're mentioning, and just did loops up and down, up and down, because you're trying to replicate or mimic what you're going to find out there in the race conditions. Um, with the altitude, I'm interested with that one. Was that, I know you have been the altitude chamber before. Yeah. Was that for yeah. that race as well? Yep. So that was for that race. That was purely from, I think, from a coaching kind of, how does this actually feel and how can I use this to benefit kind of my race? Now, you you spending time in the altitude train tr chamber before a race like that you've got you've got you know for yourself you've got to live at it really you yeah. to make the to make the real inroads into to altitude and 
you know, none of what I kind of did within the chamber will have kind of physically helped for the race. But mentally, I wanted to know, one, what it felt like, and two, also kind of whether I was a responder or not. So what I mean by that is kind of if if I my body actually responded to altitude or not, so that you know when I did go to the to 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 the outdoors, I kind of knew what to expect. Now it wasn't cheap, you know, it wasn't, but it was something I invested in because I was interested in it as a coach as well. Um, I think that's a really good point about not everyone's going to have access to it. It's yeah. not not cheap to do and maybe we need to look at and explore other options that are going to help us but I'm totally with you I've been in the altitude chamber before I've been in altitude tents and one of the biggest things with altitude when you're going there to compete or certainly when you're going there to train is the shock of it when you first get there and I think if you can limit that shock in some way you can then give yourself that understanding of what it's going to feel like and that's a big big part of it as you said to get the real effects of benefit or the the real benefits from altitude and the effect of altitude. You've got to go and live there for for quite a long time. Three to four weeks is kind of the minimum suggestion that, you know, people like physiologists make and and sports science experts. What I would say with that as well is there is a concept of go and live high and and train low, which is almost the opposite of what you're doing in an altitude chamber because you're living low and and training high. So again, what you're trying to do there is you're not trying to get the benefits from living at altitude. You, you're looking for other benefits of how does this actually feel and a, a bit of mental training, I'd yeah, say, in that. It was because I also, it really probably would have only come to play in the run section because you swam uh, low and then I obviously did the bike, which then got you up to Alpduez and then you ran around the top. So that was probably the running was only at altitude, but it was taking on fuel as well. So you know, understanding kind of how that felt at altitude and being able to take on the fuel as well and, and putting all that together. I think yeah. that's a big part of it as well. Like yeah. how is the body going to respond to that altitude? And for those listening who've never been to altitude before and you're thinking, maybe what, what are they even talking about? Like how can you possibly swim somewhere that's a different altitude to where you run? Mm. Because in this example, you've swam lower down the mountain um, let's just say as an example, let's say you were seven, 800 meters above sea level, which is still altitude, but that's classed as low altitude. Uh, somewhere familiar for us where we go, similar to that is like Morzine yeah. uh, in the French Alps. But then what you've done then is you've used the bike to climb up the mountain and you've progressively got to a higher altitude. Now, once we're at sort of 1500 meters that's when we start to look at okay this is high altitude now and it shows how long mm-hmm. or how much you have climbed on, yeah. on the bike <laughs> probably higher when you got to the top of Alp as I don't know what it is up there but by the time 17, you 18, I think. Yeah, yeah so similar to so I'm going to use Morzine as the example for those of you who've been to that area the Port de Sol area for those skiers uh, you'll know that Morzine sits at around 800 to 1000 but at the top of Aureus is more like 1800 mm-hmm. so you can climb up there and then you're running at a significantly different altitude to, to where you started, which is very, very tricky. Um, just to add a little bit of context here to what we could potentially do if we haven't got access to altitude, I know a lot of people call kind of heat training or warm weather training a poor man's or poor woman's altitude. Excuse my northern accent there. <laughs> I always get pulled up with poor. Um, poor. But they say that, you know, you can... You can elicit similar effects, not quite the same, but we, we do see increases in things like blood plasma volume, which can them really help at altitude, uh, but they're not the same effects, but they can help us prepare. 
But in this example, you were going to altitude and there was a potential for it to be hot, I'd imagine. Mm, yes. So <laughs> was that something you also factored in? Yeah, so I'd, I'd seen like how hot it can get out there. Um, and in looking at back on previous race kind of records uh, of, of the previous years and realizing kind of actually this, this is something I really do need to consider. Um, I, you know, I'm, I've said before, I'm quite fortunate because I do love the heat. So it probably suits suits me quite well but you know I'm not going to become complacent and think oh I'll just be able to 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 roll with it so yeah definitely heat training did did factor massively into it what I took on nutritionally and hydration wise was really important especially on the bike yeah fantastic I'm fascinated by this because all these things that have been going through your head you were self-coached for outdoors yes Yes, you were So this is where I think it's really interesting because you've got to a point where you have been coached in the past and obviously worked with people like Johnny. And then you've progressed to this point where you're now self-coached. And what I'm doing here as a coach listening is like, God, there's so many factors to consider here. (laughs) And you're having to think of that and piece it together and put together a plan. But I think it's really interesting how you've got yourself to that position in your life as where you've been athlete, you've learned, and then you've got to that position where you're able to then do that and plan effectively. Mm-hmm. And I think that shows where you do have that coaching brain to think I've got a lot to factor in here, mm-hmm. but you haven't cut any corners. And I think that's really important. And I think it's also a real skill. I don't think everybody can do that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where people do struggle to be self-coached. Yeah. Mm-hmm because they don't have that knowledge and that awareness and maybe that experience. And I, and I truly believe it, it is a skill that can be learned, of course, mm-hmm. but you're either that way inclined or you're not. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. So with that in mind, you're either that way inclined or you're not. <laughs> is it fair to say that you're probably always going to get into coaching of, of some form? Is that something that always intrigued you? Yeah, absolutely. I think... Uh, you know all the way through my childhood growing up I, I I loved helping people like it's it was quite obvious like supporting people and um I, I think it was just always on the cards it was just what sport and when <laughs> really so that that's an interesting what sport and when because you you did go around the houses with the different sports that oh, you absolutely, did yeah I owned, a ho- I owned a horse for quite a number of years. I remember. I, I remember going to muck it out sometimes <laughs> when you were away. I used to get dragged in to mucking horses out, believe it or not. Oh, yeah. Theakston. Yes, he was. Yeah, he's still alive now, which is great. But uh, yeah, so a horse rider, so that, that took up quite a lot, number of years. And it was, you know, I was still actually training, doing a lot of like other sports around around horse riding. So, um, but yeah, it, it, I did a lot, I think, but kind of settled with triathlon after uni. Um, I think because I went to Newcastle University and we had um, uh, athletics and cross country club there, which I joined because triathlon wasn't really kind of a part of the kind of uni setup. It wasn't then. as big then, was it? Weirdly? No, no, it wasn't. So it really only came probably, I reckon, about 2006, probably really started to gain momentum in this country. And then really, you know, it is where it is today, which is fantastic. But yeah, Around, you know, when we were at uni, it really wasn't around at all. No, I remember obviously being at Loughborough, there was a bigger presence of triathletes here. And I remember going to the um, the Students' Union to watch the triathlon in 2008. They put it on the big screen because uh, I believe we had like Tim Don competing did, there, yes. Will Clark, yeah. and then Alistair Brownlee had just mm-hmm. come on the scene. And Alistair led that race out from the front and, mm-hmm. you know, famously then kind of fell back in the field but people were saying you know this is the start of Alistair's career and it certainly was 
But it seemed to then implode when the, the Brownleys came on the scene. Sorry, explode mm. when they came yeah, on the scene. Yeah. Explode, <laughs> not implode. The opposite. Explode when the Brownleys came yeah. on the scene because they really did kind of push it to another level. And I think then interest generated into London yeah. and it has just grown and grown and grown, yeah, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah, it has. Yeah. So... You were running before that and then you got into to triathlon. But when did the actual coaching start for you? When did you think, right, actually, I'm competing, but I want to do the coaching side of things? So so I started coaching about a year into my own triathlon training. So when I joined Charmwood Tri Club and um, kind of was around, you know, racing and, and, and training for a year, I think it, it happened a quick over a quick conversation over poolside that um, there was a re- I realised that there was a junior section in the Charmwood Tri Club, and uh, they needed a bit of help. So I thought, oh, okay, I, I've got an athletics qualification. You know, I can coach. You know, um, the the running side of things, and um, let's go down to the, to the juniors and um, let's get some kind of you know help out there and see where that takes me. And that was kind of the start. Um, junior Tri Club coaching. <laughs> So you had your athletics coaching qualification before, and I'm going to say you're probably the most qualified coach <laughs> we have at NLC because you've got just about every single coaching qualification going. <laughs> you've got a list as long as my arm, uh, although I haven't got very long arms, but still. Um, you obviously were attracted to that learning element mm-hmm. from all those different coaching qualifications that you've done. But you also continue now to upskill yourself. Like I see you going on courses, you go on women's only courses, you, you're forever learning and upgrading those skills as you've gone, which is great because I think uh, George Gandhi, who's a, a brilliant coach here at Loughborough, once said to me, show me somebody who fin- thinks they're the finished article and they are finished. So I think it's really important to always keep on learning, which which you do. But with those learnings, what big coach learnings have you had over the years? What What do you know now that you maybe didn't know then when you were starting your coaching journey? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, how big's the other arm? <laughs> how long have we got? <laughs> uh. <laughs> well, the thing is, like, when I, when I started in kids coaching, like, kids teach you so much about the sport. And I think it made me realize, you know, and looking back on it now, you, you can't ignore the basics and sort of everything that those kids taught us when we, we were kind of first starting out in the coaching and, and right through because you know I, I still coached um at, at the junior section to for until before just before I had, had Mila so actually I haven't left it you know I've not been away from junior coaching for that long really but it kind of really teaches you you've got to go really go back to focus on on the basics and build those building blocks before you can kind of put everything else on top um, and, and you know, with triathlon, you know, there's a lot of money that can be spent, you know, with the bikes and the, and the, the 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 gear and everything. So, I think it's investing kind of a lot of time in in working on what we call that lower pyramid um, and that that basics kind of um, that base level of of training and fitness before you start to then add everything else on top. And we've done a couple of podcast episodes talking about that, in particular the one with with Matt Long, where we're talking about rest, recovery, regeneration, and yeah. we talk a lot about building that base and how important that is. 
I, I'm a good example of this because there is a lot of money in, in triathlon and, and I have never tried a triathlon and I don't plan on trying a triathlon either. My swimming isn't the best. I'm all right on a bike, but my swimming <laughs> isn't the best. I have, do a, I have, I'm going to confess, I have done a duathlon though before. I have swam and ran, believe it or not. Uh, the running made up for my terrible swim. <laughs> but I'm a good example of no matter how much money you pump into me and my swimming and what gear you could get me, I would still be awful unless I went and tried to master the basics, yeah. unless I worked on my technique and, and those sort of things. And I think it's a really important point to say because there's so much money that can be spent. There's a lot of technology out mm -hmm. there. And yes, you maybe get the odd 1%. And people would say, well, if I can get 1% from having a better bike, then why wouldn't I buy a better bike? I think what we want to, the message we want to get across to people is you might be able to get 1% from a bike, but you can probably get 20% from doing the right training first yeah. and, and going down that route. So as you say, mastering the basics mm. is is so important. What about like mistakes that you've maybe made as a an athlete yourself or, or as a coach I'm, I'm always making co coaching mistakes I think we should be quite vulnerable to that because that's he that helps us learn any mistakes that stand out for you that have made you a better coach or athlete so probably more so from the first kind of few years of, of as an athlete and also kind of realize you know realizing it from what how the how the kids sometimes approach races every race was an a race you know every triathlon that was entered was this is going to be my best triathlon. I'm going to PB at this. Well, you, you can't really PB at a triathlon, but, you know, it was going to be the, the pinnacle of the year. But every triathlon was like that. And actually, we spoke about it a few... Uh, was it Jethro you spoke about? Yeah, Jethro, yeah. Right back episode two, I believe. You're testing my memory now, but I think it was episode two. <laughs> you kind of have to look at the races and go, right, and pick them. This is going to be my A race. This is going to be my B races, and these are my Cs. Because everything can't be all out and all A races. <laughs> Um, you, you, you kind of, you, you can't put, it's not like putting all your eggs in one basket, is it? But you kind of think, I've, I've got to have a big focus mm -hmm. and everything else is stepping stones towards that focus. I think people really struggle with that concept and it's a really good episode to go back and listen mm -hmm. back to if you've not heard it, uh, looking at our A goals, B goals, C goals. But if you just relate it to life, because uh, I think that's a, always a really good way to do it we can't expect to be at our best every single day. Right. And we know that. We know that we need rest, recovery. But what I'm saying is we can't just expect to perform every single time. And it's the same with running. It's the same with triathlon. But we do. We put these expectations on ourselves to be able to do that. I think once people learn this and they really, truly master the art of peaking and getting that right, they do see a big difference because what I find in, in sport, and I'm sure it's the same in triathlon, is that people who often are constantly giving it their all in training and they're all in every single race, actually they can't raise their game. Whereas yeah. people who are a little bit more calculated and a little bit smarter with things, they can really raise their game when it matters. Now, I'm not saying they'll always get it right yeah. because because we won't. That's just life. But you give yourself a better chance. I'm, I'm assuming it's the same in triathlon as it is yeah, in running. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Okay, so that's that's one of the tips. What about for the mums out there who are tuning in? Because that's been a big life change for you. It's <laughs> I, I I find it inspirational to to all our mums who go out there and they perform because they've uh, gone through significant life changes, significant bodily changes as well, and they have to then readjust everything. And whilst doing that, they have to balance their life with a new little person yes. in the world. And I know the dads out there who are listening as well. I'm not going to take any credit away from you because you're also a big part of that uh, and you're a big part of that whole jigsaw. 
but for mums in particular there is a big rebuilding and regeneration phase mm. so what kind of tips and advice have you got for our mums who are maybe listening so I'm still trying to figure that out with uh, my own <laughs> kind of last four years and where that journey has taken me but I think the one thing I've 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 learned over over the 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 course of uh, of this kind of little journey that I've kind of broken this little bit up into a little journey is it's not being too critical or hard on yourself like you know as athletes we love routine we love you know we we love a plan and we love sticking to a plan and I think once somebody else then comes into your life whether that's a partner you know sometimes it can happen with with another a partner or even you know something else in your life but but from a, a child perspective that kind of throws that uncontrolled element into the mix mm -hmm. and I think you know I know I was guilty and I still am a little guilty of it now it's hard to kind of just accept sometimes when it's not happening today I've just got to move that run or that session to another day or it's you know my sleep has been really poor um, I'm quite I'm quite good at kind of now knowing when my body doesn't feel right or I don't feel right to train because of sleep I think sleep is it for me is a huge and I think for me, and many people it's a huge impact on on how you train and then how you recover so I, I think just being quite honest with yourself is like what your sleep looks like it's important I'm going to go a little bit deeper on a couple of those points because I think they're really really important and they're very very good points that, that you've brought up I think the first one is that we sometimes become a slave to the plan that we have mm -hmm. in front of us whether that's a coaching plan that's been written by a coach or whether it's a plan that you're trying to follow and we think that we have to do the plan and we become a slave to it no plan should be set in stone you should have the ability to adjust it and it's really important that you do adjust and adapt especially when you're feeling tired or, or yeah. things you know there's, there's things that you can't do that comes or leads me on to the point of our circle of control quite often we find that people don't want to do that because we have this control element and we want to be able to tick it off and we want to feel like that sense of satisfaction and we don't want to miss something but sometimes some things are outside of our circle of control and in this case the little one <laughs> so you've got to have the ability to say okay well something's happened that's outside of that circle of control I can't control that but what I can control is that I can move things around yeah. to, to adjust. My, my final point on this one, which hopefully connects all the dots here, is that I listen to a really good podcast. I always listen to it. It's called The Coopcast, a, a trail and ultra course called Jason Coop. He was talking about some of his learnings with his coaches, a really good round table session. And they were speaking about people who maybe want to do too much or always want to do everything on the plan, even though they know it's not right. Mm -hmm. And I really like the way they worded it as a team. They said, it's not that they believe their athletes can't do it. They could do it. You could go out when you're tired, when you've not slept well, when you're fatigued. You probably still could go out and fit it in. Mm. But the first thing is, is it the right decision to do that? And often the answer is no, it's not the right decision to do it. And what I really liked what they said was, is it the smart decision to do it? You know, if we're looking at piecing together consistency over a period of time, is that the smartest decision to go out and do that when you're fatigued, when you're feeling tired? And what impact is that going to have on the overall program? And I really like the way that they put that and, and phrased it. And they also said about like reframing it in, in your mind. You know, if you can reframe it like that and say, actually, I'm making a better choice here for me 
to do it on a different day yeah. that might just give you that inspiration to go and complete on a different day and not on the day that's set in stone absolutely yeah so i hope that makes sense i've kind of gone off on a little bit of a tangent <laughs> there but i tried to tie all your points together because yeah. i think they're really good relevant points that you made and i have a feeling there's a lot of people sat there at home listening thinking I know exactly what you mean there, Kirsty. I know exactly what you're referring to. And, and I know that personally because I've been there as well myself. Yeah, yeah. Okay, to, to wrap us up then, Kirst, what I'm going to ask you is a couple of quick tips for, for people who are maybe thinking about getting into triathlon. Uh, they've maybe never tried it. What sort of things should they be thinking about? Uh, and maybe what are the sort of things that they don't think about that are really important? Um, so probably one of the top things to think about is what actual distance would you like to race? Um, you know, there are quite a, a broad range, of, of, like with running events. And and, uh, and and so it's, you know, you could run, you could do a standard uh, sprint right up to the Ironman. So it's thinking about actually what do you want to do? Um, and is then, it what, so I was just on that one. So is it what suits the individual as well? Because we find that a lot in running, you know, yes, people, absolutely. yeah, more, maybe more suited to the longer distance yeah. or maybe more suited to the sprint distance. Absolutely. And I think you've also got to have a look at your own time, what you can commit to it, because, you know, let's not beat around the bush here with with Ironman training and, and Ironman distance training. You, you can't get by on, on not a lot. You have to invest the time and effort into that training it is a lot more than a sprint triathlon. So it's it's being honest with yourself that period of time that you know you're you're you've got. It doesn't mean to say that you can't do that in the future, but just be um, what's the word like uh, realistic. I think. I, I like that because one thing that I do with the athletes I work with now is we look at how much time have you got to dedicate to your plan. That's almost step one yeah, now. Absolutely. That's been a big learning for me over the years. I used to put the plan in and go, no, just do that. But actually you realize that a lot of people don't have time to do that. I think it's a really good point for a triathlete getting started. What time can you commit to this mm -hmm. first off? But not just time in terms of a weekly, like time is from a month as well. You know, are you entering and uh, like, say, let's just use the Ironman as an example. Have you given yourself three months to do it or have you given yourself 12 months? Mm -hmm. There's a massive difference in that. Yeah. And if you don't have too much time each week to play with, actually the longer run into it could work quite well. So, yeah, it's just thinking about that. Brill, so two really good tips there. I'm going to push you for a third. Something that you mentioned to me a long, long time ago and it always stuck in my mind. You said triathlon's really got four disciplines. Yes. You said the fourth discipline is is strength work, which a lot of people neglect. Yeah, yeah I absolutely love strength work. Like I, I love the gym. I love getting in there and getting really focused strength training. And I think it's it really is important to, you know, you're putting your body through a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, you swim, bike, run. It's It, it needs the help <laughs> to, to really support those three disciplines and and I think that's where the strength element really comes into it and there's a lot more to factor in as well compared to say running is you know you're using a lot more body parts a lot more often mm -hmm. yes. particularly in the swim mm -hmm. a lot more of your upper body on the bike you're using different muscle groups and things that again you might you might use them in running but they'll be recruited in a different mm -hmm. way so there's a lot more to think about and the old saying you know if you don't use it you will lose it will, yeah. i think is is so so important and as people get older particularly our masters athletes who are maybe our age group athletes mm -hmm. in in the triathlon world it's really important to keep that strength and conditioning in your plan or put it in your plan so that you do use it because then you won't lose it as you go forward. Yeah, definitely. 
Brill. Well, that was fascinating. Um, I'm not inspired to do a triathlon, I'm not going to lie, but that's just because my swimming is so bad. But I'm sure a lot of people are inspired to go away and give triathlon a go. And if you are, remember those, you know, those basic tips that Kirsty gave, and that's a really good kind of point to leave it on, is sometimes basic is better and mastering the fundamentals is so important, Mm. but also don't be afraid to go out and try. Absolutely. Oh, excuse the pun yeah. there. That's terrible, isn't it? I didn't mean that. Go but, try a try. Go and try. <laughs> go try a try. If you'd like to find out more about triathlon coaching, then you can get in touch with, as I said, Kirsty is our head coach at NLC from the triathlon section. Uh, Kirsty also does things like swim analysis as well. So if you're like me and you need to improve your swimming, then you can co- uh, contact us and I'll put you in touch with Kirsty. Uh, that swim analysis involves getting in the pool, having a look at your technique. And trust me, there are big gains to be had when you look at swim technique. But likewise, if you're thinking about entering a triathlon and you're going to do it alone, then hopefully you found this episode useful. What I would say is be brave set yourself a challenge but just to touch on Kirsty's last point make sure you give yourself plenty of time to do it don't rush into these things allowing yourself the time to train is always the most beneficial way of getting the performance that you want we hope you've enjoyed the episode please feel free to like share comment and give us any feedback we always love that feedback that comes our way we'll be back in the coming weeks with a marathon podcast coming your way and hopefully two or three more episodes before we break up for christmas do i dare say that word christmas already it's coming around quick we're past bonfire night now so now it's all focused on the the (laughs) The c word yeah it is the final (laughs) home straight but yes we have lots to do before the christmas and the festive period so we will see you all again very very soon